Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamond. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Robert? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a wordsmith. Oh, okay. And not just any old wordsmith. I'm talking about an iconic, groundbreaking, trailblazing wordsmith. Someone who has genuinely impacted the way that I see and feel about art because of the language that she uses. And yesterday we met the wonderful Taboo and I actually brought up this topic of the word chimeric, which I didn't even know as a word because yes, I'm same. very ignorant. And I loved that, that just that selection of that single word and it really got me thinking. It kind of summed up that, that skill and precision that you have to have as a writer. And today's guest has been working for many decades now and started out in like the galleries such as Paula Cooper Gallery, like helping out and wrote for Art Forum and Art in America and Village Voice and all of these very seminal, important magazines and areas of criticism. And I'm really excited to talk about all of the different types of writing you do when you work in different magazines as well. Because each of those publications has very specific approach. And um, I think sometimes when you think about a, a critic, that people don't always understand the kind of artistry behind that. Yes. And today's guest is currently the co-chief art critic of the New York Times and is the first woman to ever have that position. And, you know, has really opened up so much for all of us even in solidarity with like the queer community. I feel like you've supported so many yes. queer artists as well, as well as women um, in art. And when you think of like people like our friend Katie Hessel, I think you've really created a blueprint that so many younger people are inspired by. So we are here in gratitude and um, in deep respect for the one and only guest that we have here today. So we would like to welcome to Talk Art, Roberta Smith. Hi, Roberta. <laughs> Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I've thought about being able to do this with you guys for a long time. So. That's a very generous thought to have. <laughs> why, why, why would that be? Why would you want to talk to us? Because we're so in awe of you and we know your work so well. Well, you've, you've been so totally, you know, you've done so many people and it's been so interesting and you did my husband. So that immediately <laughs> locked you into ultimately ending up with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for inviting us into your apartment in New York. This is incredible to come in here and see how an art critic lives and they live with a lot of books and they live with a lot of art. That's true. Books are surrounding us and that makes complete sense. How important are books to you? Well, not every book in here is equally important, but what we have is the ability to kind of research anything. So if I'm doing an obit or on an artist, we usually have catalogs of that artist's work. If I'm writing about a certain period of art, we tend to represent it. I have what I would call a fantastic deck arts library, you know, because I'm really interested in ceramics and weaving and uh, ceramics. And then the way those transcend the division of craft and art. And in some places they are the art because you don't ha- they don't have you don't have tremendous number of artists painting or at any artist painting yeah yeah so. do, you, do you prefer working from a book if you're doing research say than going on the internet do you find that if you had the... oh yeah i forgot the internet i always forget the internet well obviously an internet is easier so there i mean that's very accessible but at the times we can't take anything from wiki so that cuts out a big that's just the rule there's just like an institutional mistrust of, of wiki 
Okay. So they say, where did that come from? I said, well, I got it from Wiki. And they say, nope, <laughs> you have to verify it somewhere else. So what, what do you trust them? Where, where would you look for your, if you were doing research on someone, if you didn't have the book for them? Well, I don't know. I think we have books for everything. But, you know, you get a lot of information. Say it's a museum show, you get a fair amount of information. But I'm doing the Fauvism show at the Met, <clears throat> and I've, I've got a couple of books, including a book of a big show of Fauvism that the Met did 33 years ago that I actually reviewed, which is kind of embarrassing. All I can remember about reviewing the show is being, you know, terrified because it was a big, it was a huge show. Um, anyway, so I have that catalog and I have a couple of other things. And then I I've, find that really interesting that you're terrified. You, Roberta Smith, would be terrified. Do you still <laughs> feel that today when you review shows? Oh, yeah. You do? Yeah. Be because of feeling like, what, you don't know enough or? Well, yeah, I mean, I only have a, have a, uh, BA. I didn't, I never went to graduate school. And so everything I know, I kind of learned on the job, you know, like speed reading catalogs or whatever. And I love this quote from Peter Sheldahl, who said that sometimes when you write a review, it has everything you know about the subject in it. In other words, everything you've just learned so that you can kind of cobble together a credible review. And the main thing is you don't act like you know it, know it all, Do you know, that you're familiar with it or. But that must be a skill not to come across as kind of almost obnoxious in your intelligence when it comes to art. That is definitely a skill that you have where you feel like you connect to so many people, even though you're writing about something that a lot of people wouldn't really understand or get to see themselves. Well, you have to keep in mind what your audience is. Mm. And I've been, you know, at times that they'll say, you know, this is a, the common reader is not going to get through this, you know, rewrite this sentence or rewrite this graph. But I do pretty well. I mean, I was, I've always been very dedicated to kind of plain language, you know, and, um, you know, it's really great if you're writing something like I'm, the thing that I do that is that I take exhibitions as, as a kind of object, as a kind of place and, my review is supposed to lead people through it and sort of give them ideas about how to look at it and where to pick out certain objects. So that's already a kind of manageable unit in my head. Mm. You know, and I can I can put in historical backgrounds so or I can just say, you know, look at this and now I'll go look at that and see how they relate, you know, something like that. But um <laughs> and I'm sort of the same way with with my writing. I mean at a certain point, I realized, like when I was overriding, the reader never knows what you had to leave out. No. Do you know that what you what you want is a kind of wholeness? And I also proceed sort of spatially because, at a certain point, at at different points, I'll say, "What does the reader need to know now?" So I, I'm really just a reviewer. I don't really think I'm a critic in the high-blown sense. Well, I love the fact that you're thinking of the reader rather than the artist that you're reviewing. At no point are you going, or I mean, speaking for you, but I, it feels like the reader is and that the audience is the most important person rather than actually connecting to the artist, say, and hoping that they will appreciate what you're saying or they will be. Do you feel a responsibility to the artist or more the audience? Um, well, I try not to talk to artists. You know, I've always said this, it's repeated, Artists don't own the meaning of their work. 
You know, you really, nobody who makes art can think about it in a holistic way. Think about it in a full 360. It's just not possible. And, and um, I'm thrilled when artists like my writing, but I'm not writing for them. I'm writing for people who are trying to figure out how to look at the work and who are going to start with my opinion and sort of understand how you form an opinion, which is by looking and by interrogating your subjective responses. You know, so um, I wouldn't presume that I could teach an artist anything about their work, but I, occasionally I have. So did that's you, sort of the icing on the cake. Did you, that was some, well, that's a generous gift, but did you ever think that artists, when you first started out, was, were able to look at themselves from a kind of... No, I mean, I started out in completely a different position. You know, I really... Um, some of my first articles were on individual artists like Gusta and Archfather. There might have been one other, Scott Burton. And I would go to them and talk to them, particularly Gusta. And it was incredibly important to me that they liked the artists. When I went to The Voice, from Art in America to The Voice, that, that completely... This is The Village Voice. Yeah. Yeah. That was completely transformed because what happened was my writing was in print while the art people that it was about was on the wall or in the gallery. So people could take a review and go and really check about what I said against the actual thing. And that kind of forced... And that was like, a new concept because that the, the thing is that sort of makes complete sense that you'd want to read a review and see the show. Yeah. But so often we read reviews when the show's been long closed. Well, that's that's and, the, and way the same argue. with the podcast. We, we we try and get if someone's got a show on, we want the podcast out. So we're like like you're yeah. a guide. We want to be a guide. So we're saying to people, this is how you see the work. It feels like obvious, but when it isn't, it does it doesn't make sense that you would ha review something months after it's been on. Well, that's the physical limitations, though. Print before the internet before digital printing, yeah. they were by definition six about six weeks late, if not later. And um, that's crazy. It just I doesn't know it is. Yeah. And you that do, is still the case now for certain publications. It sort isn't of it? is, but they all have an online ah, right. component, okay. and so they're all, they're putting out little reviews. But uh, no, it was a huge difference, and it was like a kind of truth serum, like. You know, there's nothing you can do but be honest, and you're not there to kind of be honest about what the artist said. You're supposed to be honest about what you said, and that was that was a big turnaround. I mean, literally, what is it? Half is 180. It's like I went from being sort of a spokesperson for the artist mm -hmm. to being a representative of the audience. And sort of being on the front row and going in and say, okay, this is what you can see here. This is what I think. And uh, artists had nothing to do with it. Did you upset a few artists at that? So say you had, you were the spokesperson for them. You're on their side, say, and suddenly you're there. Would they see you as, did they see the critic I, as the enemy in some capacity? I don't, I, I may have, I wasn't that well known when I went to The Voice. So I don't, I don't know. And I don't, I didn't talk to people, but I know that I made some people very unhappy. Did you? You know, for a while, I had people who didn't speak to me. Like who, can you say? No. No. <laughs> but did that upset, in turn, upset you that you'd upset them, or was you kind of very staunch in what your opinion was and that was what it was? Uh, yeah, both. Right. I mean, you, you write what you want to write, and then you realise, hey, this is going to go into print. 
and that would be terrifying. So, you know, you had to get over that. Like I, I used to kind of go into a fetal position. I would whimper, and Jerry said, what is it? I said, it's Thursday night. And he said, oh, yeah, you're in print tomorrow. You know, so it was... And how would they, with the art, sorry, are you, I'm not letting you talk. No, he's like, not. But are you, for the with, with the artists, like, sorry, Rob, but would the artists, like, call you up and go, what the fuck are you doing? How could you say this about me? How, how would you know that they were upset? Well, they, they wouldn't speak to you when you saw them again, you know, if you've been, if you've been sort of an acquaintance. Um, oh, my God. So, but that, you know. So I you lost re- friendships sometimes over it. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, you realize you have to kind of absent yourself. Like, you, like I don't want to know artists right now because if I get to know them too well, I won't write about them. You know, I don't, I don't write about Tip's work, for example. This is Carol Dunham's work, yeah. who you live with. There's a few pieces here. Yeah, because yeah. he's a really good friend of mine. And, um, so you would have to turn down a review of something. Yeah, because it like clouds your judgment. Yeah. your judgment. Yeah. But if like the New York Times said we need one Carol Dunham, he's got this big retrospective or something, you would say no, I can't do it. No, it's totally, I, I've said it. These are the artists I don't write about. Who else? Well, Terry Winters, who I used to live with. Right. And uh, Laurie Simmons. And there are a few others. I don't know. It does. It just wouldn't feel right. Maybe once I leave the Times, there'll be this, I'll be writing about these people. I don't know. Oh. You know, but this, that's the, there's a kind of code of ethics yes. at the paper. And they expect you to kind of define it for your own discipline. And I don't know. I mean, I think John Russell used to write about people he was friendly with. And uh, you know who John Russell is? I've heard of him. So he wrote for? He wrote for the Times. Right. He actually brought me to the Times. Oh, wow. So he was close to retirement when he did that. And did he give you advice when you, you started? Was he like, don't write about your friends, well, even though he did? or? No, nobody gave me advice. Really, they just like kick you off the deep end. And if you rise to the surface again, they'll give you another assignment, you know? Criticism is a very weird activity. I mean, I don't think it, I, I think critics can teach it, but if you're teaching it and you've never been a critic, and I have, I guess, when I say I don't consider myself a critic, I do, but I have a kind of, you know, in the hierarchy of critics, I'm sort of along the, the bottom. I mean, I am a reviewer. There's nothing I like more than going to a gallery seeing a show I really want to write about and doing it and conveying either my excitement or my outrage or whatever. And I don't, I don't write essays, you know, I'm very aware of that. And I don't, at this point, I'm, I'm not collecting my writing. I don't really see that as a... What, is that, what do you mean, not collecting I'm it? I'm not in... collecting my reviews into a book and having them brought out as a physical book. Have you been approached to do that? Well, there have been people who, who would help me edit it, which is a huge, huge task. Yes. But no, no one has. <laughs> well, so, after this, maybe Roberta, so after it's this. it's pretty easy. No, but it, it's just, first of all, it's time-consuming. Secondly, it means you have to go back and read stuff, which I almost never do. Once it's out there, it's gone. Yeah. You forget about it. That's the thing about, particularly about writing for a paper that's, well, a daily, but even for a weekly you just have to keep going. You just, it, it's such a great thing pushing you toward the future. It's a momentum you can't get off. Yeah, know, don't, don't like, look back. Okay, this week you wrote about, say, Munch, and you really learned quite a bit about Munch. You got, you got a few Munch books together, you read catalog essays, you read online, 
blah, blah, blah. And then next week, it's somebody else. And the thing is that a lot of what I learn about Monk is then gone. Yeah. You know, it's then erased. Yeah. Yeah. It's erased by the next thing. And sooner or later, some of you start retaining it and it starts building up. But Mm. there's this. You know, you just have finished writing and you think, my God, I, I probably know more about this show than anyone oh. because I've looked at it three or four times and I've gone over it work by work and label by label. And and not not everybody has to do this kind of... Some people just go in and look... I mean, Peter used to just go in and sort of look at a show and then he had all these ideas about the artists and the art. I'm not sure I have real ideas, do you know? I'm really interested in what I get from the object and what other what's available for other viewers to get from the object. That, that's what's always struck me about your writing, though, is I feel like, A, it's short form, so it's it's very concise, and you were talking about that very sort of plain language you need, but often you, you bring out very rich textures through your choice of language, mm. and it really strikes me. It must be, I, find, I would find that really stressful, <laughs> like this idea of having to be really concise. Like I'm actually more of a free-flower writer. I can write pages and pages and pages and not, you know when you have to like reduce or edit and get yeah. to the pure kind of thought or the, the meaning behind it. And there's something in your short form that I think is looking at the work, which other writers often don't actually do. Like, they're obviously looking at the work, but I mean, there's some sort of, like, feeling towards Instinct. the object like you're talking about. Yeah. Do you think that is unique to the way you write? I don't know if it's unique. I don't write that. I don't read, particularly now with Peter gone, I don't read that many other people. But um, I think it might be a little bit, particularly right now when we've had so much contextualization in terms of the art object and in, in history and in contemporary looking, which is always interesting, but it's just not... You know, it's not what I wanted to do, and consequently, it's also not what I was educated to do. You know, I don't keep up with reading. I keep up with art. You look at what people are doing, and then you can kind of extrapolate. Like, conceptual art really forced me to write a different way, to write more about narrative, to write more about ideas, and I, I welcome that. But it it's mostly the art that, sort of guides you a bit. So conceptual art was quite a big shift for you in the way you thought about how to write. Well, I, you know, the first artist I ever knew and was sort of learned from was Donald Judd, who didn't have much patience for conceptual art. And because he was a minimalist art, artist. Because he said, art is something you look at. <laughs> and, that was, and I was, I agree with that. And in some, in some way, I ultimately still agree with it. But I, I do think there are different kinds of visuality. And I do think that really good conceptual art is involved with form, which is something, the discussion of which is, can be very minimal these days. Yeah, you, there was no, there wasn't an object that wasn't there just by necessity, do you know? There's a quote you said, where you, when it comes to your taste, you're very orientated towards things that don't move. <laughs> yeah, <I am>. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes complete sense with Donald Judd in some yeah. capacity because they are structures, they are solid, right. they're in the room, they're not ideas-based, they're very much like they are an idea originally and then they are created. Right. So do you think your taste has been defined by these friendships and relationships that you've built up with artists over the years? Well, 
you know, I was still in college when I knew Judd, and I and I had no idea that I would be a critic, although I did read all of his writing, which was very foundational for me. I mean, and at that point, there wasn't that much writing. He, he wrote a lot more starting in the late 60s, which is when I first met him. But yeah, I mean, after I worked for Judd, I worked for Paula Cooper, which was a completely different aesthetic. Do you know, these were, those artists were kind of the artists that were left out of conceptual art, you know, like Joel Shapiro, Jennifer Bartlett, Elizabeth Murray, John Borofsky, um, Alan Shields. They were all, Joel Fisher. They were all more object and material oriented. Yeah. And I, I remember when I left Paul's, I worked for, there for two and a half years. And when I left it, this kind of major conceptual artist came up to me and said, I'm so glad you left this gallery. Now we can talk to you. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was a joke. I'm right. sure it was meant yeah, yeah, lightheartedly. Yeah. But, you know, there was a split. Like Paula Cooper was one side and Sonnabend was sort of the so it's other. It's a bit West Side Story of the art world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's still like that, though. I think each gallery can become its own oh, universe sure. in yeah. a way. Or the and galleries, also, they move around within packs, don't yeah, they? Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and also you're you're competing, I guess, for an audience or for sales or for what it, whatever it is. So I guess there's always this kind of individual camps. Well, I mean, art dealers are, you know, psycho. I'd love to read a psychoanalysis kind of general one of, of what it takes to be an art dealer. Because I think they're the most important people in a way. That they're they're the ones that help art get out out of the studio, mm. get into view, and I do think that they partly do that by creating their own worlds from scratch. And you don't see a lot of art dealers in other art dealers' galleries. No, you know they they really that's mm. that's in their gallery is where they want to be. And I don't know what they feel when they, like if somebody's really important, you know, like Richter or somebody, you'll see an art dealer, see people sort of slinking around looking. Um, but I don't know what it's like. It's like going to another artist's studio for an art dealer, which is fine, but it may not be, you may not be psychically uh, experienced at doing that. Yeah, so maybe it would be a distraction or something from your well, own. Well, they path. sit in their galleries, and the entire art world comes to them. Yeah, there's nobody, there's nobody who doesn't pass through those doors, which is why it's so interesting, because you can really see how how it works. And it always has fascinated me that quite a few art dealers, at least younger art dealers, are, were originally artists, mm. and they veer off. They start working like in the back of the gallery, they're making crates or, you know, keeping records or doing whatever. And then they kind of gradually start coming into the whole activity. And, you know, like Gavin Brown is the prime example. It, becomes, it goes from being an artist to being a really great dealer. Mm. And I, I didn't realize think, Gavin Brown was an artist. Yeah. Was he good? Roberta Smith, in your opinion? <laughs> I don't Did you remember. see his art? You don't remember. <laughs> I get to say that more and more now. I don't, I don't remember. It's That's your so, way there's out. There's so yeah. much I don't remember. It's a very good excuse. I would like to psychoanalyze collectors as well. You're saying about art dealers. I think a collector's brain is a but very unique. But that's been done more. There are a couple of books about it. I forget the title. But, yeah. But, a Freud, a Freudian approach to it or a Jung approach right. to it, what that all is. But right. do you, when you write, is a collector on your mind ever? 
Well, not in not in the explicit sense, but there is art that I like I write about that I would like to own, but I don't and probably won't. Because of ethics. Because of ethics. Yeah, it just gets to I mean all of the art here either is Jerry's or came in before the before I started to write for the Times. Some of them were gifts from non-artists, not from the artists. You're happy to take a gift? Well, from a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so... But also you have... Not as a bribe. When we interviewed Jerry, he spoke about a few works you have here that are copies. Right. So they're kind of fakes and they're explicitly... Bootlegs, sorry. And they're explicitly, like, represented as that. We commissioned those. Yes, exactly. And the one that you like the most is that weeping, weeping woman. I know. I just love that painting. It has everything in it. Picasso, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and the Tate owns it. Oh, the Tate owns that one. Yeah. Ah. You don't know that? No, I know. I've, I've seen. I've seen it in London. <laughs> I didn't know they owned it actually. I, I've also seen it in Paris because there was a show. Oh, it's maybe... probably it's in a lot of shows. It was. She's toured around crying all over the world. And and I've seen it in Madrid actually. Yeah. Roland Penrose was visiting Picasso the day. At least this is the story. The day he painted that, and he asked for it, and Picasso gave it to him, and then he gave it to the Tate. Right. Who's Roland Penrose? He's British. He's an artist and a writer. So he hung around with artists a whole lot. But listen, I, I know him primarily because of Lee Miller, who was his wife. And uh, I've seen a few of his paintings, but I know him mostly because of that. I just like that took such balls. <laughs> to you go, know? I'll have that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If we go all the way back, I know you were born in New York City, but you grew up in Kansas. And I met a collector the other night, and we spent literally 40 minutes talking about Kansas and about how there wasn't much there, is what he said, and a lot of nature. And um, it got me thinking about this blankness somehow. Sometimes when there are places that are quite open, either concrete, where it's, you know, I remember there's David Bowie stories of places he would go to, or like Detroit um, back in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, or Berlin in that kind mm-hmm. of 80s era, where, where there's a lot of um, space psychologically for people to become these kind of big characters or or even writers. You know, some of my favourite writers ever have come from very remote places and mm-hmm. maybe never even left those places, but just wrote all of their lives, these kind of like dreams of, mm-hmm. of other worlds. How important was Kansas to you, like forming the writer that you sort of became? Do you think it had an impact on you? Um, well, I was sort of clinging to, clinging to the eastern edge of Kansas, sort of right outside of Kansas City. And it wasn't empty there. Oh, I mean, okay. some of it was. But I don't I couldn't answer that question. I don't know how I became a writer. I wrote a, I was told I was a good writer before I became a critic. I mean in college and in high school. I wrote very easily. And my father, my grandfather on my were both writers of a sort. Uh, you know, they were academics. But um Kansas was good probably for me because it it was empty in another sense. There there weren't when I come here, I can't imagine people growing up here because there's so much you can do and then your peers are doing so much that, you know, it's hard not to feel competitive or whatever. I mean, people who've grown up here, I'm so amazed by what they know, their their style sense, all this stuff, how early they were doing things like, like there was a shoe, there were Papagallo shoes when I was growing up. Well, friends here had them too, but they had them like, three or four grades earlier than I did, you know, they would make their way out to Kansas. And I think that there was that kind of, um, I think lack lack of competition is good for me, uh, unfortunately. 
but um, th there was that kind of emptiness. Was there a museum in Kansas? Is there? Oh a museum? yeah, well, there's the Nelson Atkins in Kansas City, which is a great museum, mm -hmm. particularly in Asian art, because one director was there right after World War II, sort of getting a lot of things. Uh, a man named Lawrence Sickman, and then there was a, a university museum. At, I grew up at the University of Kansas, right, in a town called named Lawrence, Kansas, uh -huh. which is where Quantrill's Raid was. Where what? Quantrill's Raid. What's that? It was like a bunch of cowboys coming into town and setting things on fire. And I think it was uh, over, well, you know, it was called Bleeding Kansas because it was a, in, in the years just before the Civil War, there was a lot of contention and a lot of fighting about which new states were going to be, if new states were going to be slave states. And Kansas didn't turn out to be that way, but there were, a proportion of people that wanted it to be. Well, but there were also, um, I, would, I guess Quantra is a kind of gorilla, you know, coming in and right. trying to make an impression. Scaring people. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, if you're in a university town in a place like Kansas, you're very much in a bubble. Yeah. You know, the rest of the state thinks you're communists and you're this little town that votes blue. So in that way, you're very protected because you you get it, you... you you may not know them, but there are people from all over the world there. You know, it's sort of fairly international. And why did you end up in New York? And why do you think New York is has been historically such an epicenter for art? Well, I ended up with New York because I had a I was going to school in Iowa and I had a kind of New Yorker manque for a teacher who kept up on everything that happened in New York. And he found out about this thing called the Whitney Independent Study Program, mm. which had existed for like one semester. And he, and he just said to me, you, you are applying for this. And I said, me? I said, if I get in, do I have to go? And he said, definitely. And I got in. And partly because I proposed doing a paper on Judd. That was, that was your main application. Artists went on their, you know, applying with their work, and non-artists, art historians, applied with a topic. And, uh, you know, the first day I got here was like, oh, my God. I mean, I'd been here a couple of times as a kid, but it hadn't, hadn't really hit me. But I just loved it immediately so much. And it really, I say this probably too often, but the first thing, one of the things that came to my mind was I could be happy here. Mm. which I don't think I'd quite grasped that that was a possibility in my life, do you know? And you have been happy here. Yeah. And at no point you've ever thought, Jerry, come on, we need to go L.A., we need to go Paris, Rome, London, we well, need to do our jobs there. towns that, cities that have really great public transportation systems, mostly London and Paris, mm. have a certain appeal. Mm. But um, no, not really. He's the one who wants to go. <laughs> he like had to work through his whole desire to be in L.A. And now that's over. And uh, he likes to be up in the country with nature. And we spoke about that the other night at dinner. Uh, we, met, we were sitting next to each other at Tracy Emmons' dinner. And um, it really made me laugh because I said, oh, you must really enjoy being upstate or in Connecticut or, you know, wherever you spent the pandemic. But your response was, I wanted to get back to the city. I love yeah. being in the city. I mean, I love being up there for specific lengths of time, you know, and then coming back. But uh, I would, I, 
I mean, I, I think I might end up living up there and I'm hoping that when that happens, by that time I will have gotten old and frail enough that I want to be up there. But on the other hand, I think this neighborhood in particular, it's like half NYU student and half elders, you know? So there, there are a lot of people who are older than me, you know, who are still living their lives here and uh, doing quite well. But also something tells me you'll miss going to all the brand new exhibitions and seeing all the new art and all no, the new I thinking. No, I thought we want to stay here with them. Yeah, exactly. You know? How often do you write? How often are you having to write uh, a critical response well, to Well, I show? used to write <laughs> once a week, but now it's more like every other week. You know, I'm kind of slowing down a little. And the other thing that's a little upsetting is that it's taking me longer to write. And um, I, I read something recently, some writer said, writing doesn't get any easier. You know, it's not something you can look forward to, <laughs> which really gave me heart. <laughs> Do you pitch the shows that you want to write about or they approach you and say, this is coming up, can you cover this, Roberta? Uh, both. Okay. And then there's a kind of the gallery situation is kind of a, you know, first come, first serve. We have a kind of rotating list on that you can contribute to online. And once you've done that, you're going to review that show unless there's some, you know, some kind of conflict, like somebody, an editor has asked somebody else to do that review. And you're co-chief. So right. there's an, you're with another... Holland Cotter is the other co-chief. Are you rivals or friends? I would say neither. What? Well, what's what's that then? If you're not a rival or a friend, neutral. <laughs> it's kind of neutral. I mean, I I love Holland in a certain way, and uh, I I think he loves me. We're not actually that compatible, do you oh, know. But not competitive either. I think we've worked through that. You know? but, you, but you were. There was competition when it all started. Well, like I, yeah. But we're not going to talk about that. That's fine, fine, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no. It's almost like two circles and you're both covering different things, maybe. You know what I mean? Like, well, and then maybe Colin you meet has in a the very middle. specific. Exactly, yeah. We're talking about circles and the cyclical nature. Derek Jarman said if you wait long enough, the world moves in circles. When it comes to art, you must see trends or the same sort of movements coming around because you've been doing it for decades now where you go, that artwork then was fresh, and now it's back here 30 years later, and everybody's going, wow, what's this? And you're like, hang on, guys, slow down. <laughs> I saw this 30 years ago. Do you find that art, the art world, the nature of artists is cyclical? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, when I came into the art world, you know, figurative art was just, you know, very marginalized. You didn't, everything was abstract, and... It was sort of as if, well, it's going to stay this way. And it didn't. So that was, you know, that was fascinating to see how how people who were marginalized at a certain point are celebrated at another point. And so, the, so that that circling goes on in many ways, that things, the art world does circle back for things that were sort of left out. And there's this whole retrieval process. But there's also this repetitive thing where, and at a certain point, you just say, well, what am I going to do? Like, go and say, so-and-so, an artist, this younger artist has probably never heard of, mm. did this 30 years ago. I mean... But can't be, do you not have a responsibility to say that? Um, 
I know it's not something that I say a lot. And also when, when something strikes me that way, it's probably not something I'll write about, you know, because I know I haven't, I know I haven't much good to say about it. Mm. And it's just somebody's first show or second show, you know, so. You want to be kind. Yeah. I mean, like right now, my kind of writing is not in fashion. I'm very aware of that, that people write from a much more, much broader, more contextualizing points of view. Mm. So I'm hoping that, you know, it, it'll be cyclical enough to maybe pick me up again, you know? <laughs> yeah. Is, is, do you, is there anything new when it comes to art? Do you ever go, okay, I have never seen anything like this? Or do you feel like you've probably seen most versions of something, even if it's extended version or a different idea within the same context? Well, things, you know, art's always using fragments of other art. So you've seen parts of things, mm. but it's, but it's usually put together uh, differently. And I do think that humans are hardwired to, to experience the new, to have the new, you know, like we don't listen to derivatives of Beatles songs forever. Mm. You know, somebody will say, well, a lot of art is a derivative of a Beatles song. And yeah, there, it's always going to be stuff like that, but something that's really new makes an impact. Are you aware of, or, or hyper aware of trends? Are, you, are these things that you sort of try and avoid? Or if, if like an, an artist is deemed as hot and there's like a, a group of artists that are all sort of doing the same thing, do you run towards that or are you slightly back foot on that? If it's early enough, I might go toward it. But if right. it's already been there a while, I probably wouldn't. But, you know, you, you look for things that will have a certain amount of impact. So if writing about an artist who's sort of right in the center, you know, there's, there's a certain, that's attractive. You, yeah, exactly. You have an audience for the review. I mean, and I don't mind doing that. And I just, by the same uh, measure, I like writing from the edges. I mean, I think that's my main contribution is that I've written about outsider art and ceramics as art. And I think I did that, you know, when a, there weren't a lot of people doing it. And Jerry, too, um, at least in terms of outsider art. So, do, do you write outside of uh, critical theory for pleasure? Do you, do you ever write like? Well, first of all, I don't write inside critical theory. <laughs> At least I don't think. And um, I, I write letters. That's how I started writing. And I write, I start writing letters and they just could go on forever. So I don't do that too much. Yeah, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but that's really my first writing. I was writing my parents about college or living in New York. I don't do a lot of out, but it's still, there's a kind of way I... I write emails where I know, oh, you're writing. You know, you're like going over and changing words and doing all this stuff and saying something in a slightly peculiar way, a way that I know comes from the way my father talked and certain little colloquialisms that we had around the house. My father had a weirdly kind of formal, not, it didn't feel formal. It just sounded formal. And I can see that creeping into both my writing and my speech. Wow. 
if, if people are listening to this, sometimes if you think of someone as senior as yourself in terms of like the position you hold, like it's a quite powerful position, you know, in the New York Times, you're very high up in the echelons of art, art criticism, art mm. reviewing. Can we talk about the psychology of it? Because I find it so interesting, the word dread, because you said something about dread earlier. When And, and the introduction as well, you, you were talking about when you were younger and how you would have been like nervous or like, you know, being pushed pushed into the swimming pool, <laughs> you know, before you've learned to adults, swim. Yeah. yeah. Can you talk a bit about that kind of fragility of like the confidence when you approach writing? Because I feel like there's so many writers I know that you, you assume they like love writing and they really enjoy writing their novel or whatever, but actually it's tortuous. And even when we wrote our, our books, like it's a really stressful thing to have that pressure because you know people are going to read it and then judge you and, and, and look back. But I love that coming from someone who's seen it, you know, respected globally as a kind of voice for art. Well, I just think, you know, first of all, I think in the art world, you know, you find the uh, calling that fits your neuroses. You know, I'm a procrastinator. I think that once I leave the Times, I'll never write again, you know. Happily. Or... Happily, probably. <laughs> Without the know? deadline. Yeah. yeah. And that I have to have people who want it now. And I'm sort of, you know, I go, whether it's every week or every other week, I go from one piece to the next. And every time you start a piece, it's, I can't believe that I'm the only one who feels like I'm going to be discovered as a fraud. I'm going to be viewed as an idiot. You know, I can name four critics that could do this better. And it, it's, it's kind of great in a way because it keeps you humble. Mm. I mean, I don't really ever think about what kind of power I have. You know, because all I know is You must be aware that you are one of the most important critics in the world. How do you... In the abstract, but I just stay in New York. I don't go on... At least since COVID, I have not been in an airplane. And sometimes I think I might never again be in an airplane. I mean, there's certainly enough going on here. I do know that that's kind of cosseted, to say the least, Mm. and that I'm missing a lot. But I've... First of all, I really believe in a local art scene. Mm. You have to have one before you're going to have any kind of stature anywhere else, before that scene is going to have any stature. But writing at certain points is incredibly fun. Once something gets going and it's you're in the sweet the so-called spot. flow, you're mm. right in the sweet spot. But getting started, I always it takes me a long time to find what we call the top. You know, like I usually have about five tops going. And once and I can't write I can once in a while I can jump ahead and write something, but I really have to write as I with a kind of structure, a progression mm. in mind. Like I can't just say, "Oh, I'll write this graph here and it'll go in later." That's not one of my habits. So um, when you say the top, this is your entry into the piece. Yeah. How yeah, do you yeah. get the How do you get the viewer interested, and how do you keep them interested? Got it. And um, you know, you want to start out with a certain kind of boom you know, it might be a little boom or, but but you just want to write something that as language will snag them and then you try to keep that going of course you're not going to but it, you know if you can do it for three sentences then you're then in you, yeah then you then you go on small details are big surfaces tight corners are odd shapes flat rounded textured or tall Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves 
without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And being a partner of another art critic, your partner, Jerry Sauce, another foremost art critic, one of the most important in the Western world, uh, writes <laughs> in the New York magazine. Do you keep each other going? If you're a procrastinator, does he go, come on, Roberta, you've got to write this review and vice versa? And you is bet. there any competition between you two? Well, he's not a procrastinator. His, his whole approach to writing is I have to write this now and get this out, out of me, out of my computer, into the editor and then get, get the playback and see how, see how it goes. But he has, he has a fantastic work ethic. And I have almost none, you know. So, but but we help each other. Like, you know, we help each other. Say with first lines. But Jerry has a real talent. I mean, like, pretend Jeff Koons is an artist. Isn't that one of the greatest first lines ever? I mean, really, it's just like, who are you? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved his headline last week, Tracy Emin is serious. I just thought it was such a, I really, I was like, what? I just loved, you know. Well, it's very much an American headline. Yeah. You wouldn't see it in Britain. No, but it's brilliant. You never write about the same shows, do you? We do a little bit. Do you? We try to avoid it. I try to, I've been really avoiding it. You know, like he wrote something on Charles Taylor, but he picked it, he didn't see the show. He did an advance based on paintings. So some of that is unavoidable. And then we, everything, like, I won't write on Dana Schutz, partly because I wrote on her last show. So I was, as far as I was concerned, I was out of the picture, you know. Was it a positive response? Yeah, I mean, I think she's made um, great strides with each of her shows. Have you seen this show? Yeah. I mean, I think it was really like, Okay, this is what a really good artist looks like when they become great. I mean, just like yeah. her finally stepping into a kind of maturity. Yeah. And you can look back and you can sort of see what didn't quite work with her other amazing piles of figures and heads and things. There was much more control and clarity, and I thought. Yeah, it was impressive. I loved that painting of the figure in the bed it's like a smaller work and it's got it's almost like an alien woman oh, or right. alien person with kind of objects like on, a their lipstick head. on her head right. i just love that painting i complete it was the thing that just like sucked me in they say and this it, thing with artists that if you make something for 10 years it's boring if you do it for 20 years you're a genius <laughs> have you noticed that with many artists um yes i mean i think that i think it takes a really long time for most painters to become good and I know that there have been certain painters that I thought, well, you're not interested in that. I'm not interested in that painting. And then like five or 10 years later, it's like, oh, okay, here they, here's the, the good part is really beginning now, you know? And I, I think we all forget that, mm. you know, that, that most artists, you know, you can have like 
somebody who's incredibly precocious, like Frank Stella, you know, who's like a senior at Princeton or something, and he's already getting attention from, partly because he has a New York painter for a teacher, Stephen mm. Green, who just goes, and then he hits some problems later on, a lot of people would say, and I, I was interested probably longer than most of the people I came into the art world with, do you know? And Judd, you know, Judd took, is, is completely the opposite, and that's always inspirational too. You know, he took a good, over a decade of making paintings he didn't really like and finally like edging into relief and edging into three dimensions. I mean, he's, he's very cautious, mm. if nothing else. Does the art world feel healthy now? Or is, it, or is there a period where you felt like it was really at its most kind of sexy? Or do you feel like we are stagnating or is it ex exciting and still inspiring at the moment? Well, I mean, I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. So I'm probably not the best person to ask. I've always been excited by the art world and I continue to be. It's much, much different. I mean, when I was first working, when I worked for Paula Cooper, I wasn't even writing them, but I would have, I asked for a day off. I worked four days a week. And the fifth day, I saw virtually all the galleries I wanted to see in New York. I'd start up at 81st Street with the Bikert Gallery, see Klaus Curtis in the late morning. And then I'd just come down Madison Avenue across 57th Street and down to Soho. And that was it. I mean... So, so Chelsea didn't exist at that point, oh, no. really? Soho barely existed at that point. Wow. Just, you know. So it's a lot easier to navigate back then as well. Yeah. I guess there's so many. There's hundreds now, isn't there? There's more. And, and there was this huge increase after COVID. That's when it's since COVID that the art world, that the gallery scene has gotten just completely out of control. I mean, I used to be able to keep legal pad lists for each neighborhood and I'd know what I'd seen. I know what I'd missed. And it was almost all written down. It would take five or six pages, but this is how I kept track of things. There's no way you can do that. There's no way you can know about new neighborhoods and all the galleries in them. Does it feel like you have to know, though, or do you feel like you have to know what's going on constantly, or do you do you just know the shows that you're going to be working on now to a certain extent? Well, I always dreaded that because I always thought if I'm just if I'm just seeing the shows I'm writing about, that's really bad. That's right. a very blinkered view. But it, it it happens sometimes. Like I can go whole months because of writing that I don't get out to galleries. That's, that was unheard of before COVID. Mm. And um, so I try to keep up. I'm sort of at the stage where I'm not going to Brooklyn anymore. Do you know? I just, that I know there's interesting things going out there. But I also think that everything will come, you know, that Manhattan is a kind of magnet and art dealers are not, you know, they're always looking for new material. So Does that upset people, though, if you say that you're not going to Brooklyn anymore? I don't say it very often. <laughs> You've and just said it with talk art. I know. <laughs> Oops. And it's probably not totally true, but it has been true since COVID. Right, right, right. You know, but I, I know how to get there, so... That hasn't I'm changed. I'm sure you will. That yeah. hasn't changed. Um, I read a really beautiful interview with you with Jarrett Ernest, 
it was talking about a time when someone had been quite critical of your writing early on and then you moved to another publication. I think maybe you moved to Art in America or Right, right, them. right. But it got me thinking for some reason about Faith Ringgold when she said that her major obstacle in her career was actually being a woman, like primarily, beyond even racism and mm -hmm. being a black woman. It was actually this idea that, you know, being a woman is actually top of the list of like obstacles. Um, what was it like for you in the 70s, 80s as a woman writer? Did you experience a lot of kind of resistance or did you just get support because it was an art world which was probably a smaller industry I guess well I was a, I was very naive and I'm not sure and not to not to I wasn't a feminist so I wasn't looking I I wasn't scrutinizing for that kind of an issue mm. so I'm sure that there's a way I went through stuff that I didn't experience as such there are a few male critics that, you know, said things to me that I know I don't, I didn't appreciate then and I don't appreciate now. Like what can you say? Somebody said, well, you're a formalist. It's like, ooh. <laughs> what do they mean by that, though, that you? They obviously, you know, that I'm just writing about what I see and, what, you know, what it's made of and stuff like that. Okay. So I'm going to say they were that, saying you're surf, more surface than yeah, what they were doing. Okay. More object oriented, right, right, and right. Um, I think everybody has to, no matter what you end up writing about, you sort of have to start out as a formalist because the object is the evidence of the theories you're building around it, you know, and there has to be some kind of agreement. But anyway, um, no, I think I was very unconscious. I wasn't too conscious of my ambition, but I kept pushing, you know, mm. in a certain way. And uh, and I had really close friends who I knew were very good, good writers, well-read, and good editors. They really helped me. You know, I'm, I'm basically the a really good critic named Sanford Schwartz uh, was sort of my writing coach for a while. Oh, you wow. know, and he he had complete confidence in me and he also could say well that's not so good or he i'd hand him like 10 sheets of rough and he'd be reading down and he'd say oh here's your beginning you know like into the there's second page end. or something there's your top yeah there's your top so yeah, yeah. you know it was like something that caught his interest you just say you know get rid of that or put it elsewhere it's a skill can i ask you an existential question why is art important well, I mean, it's nourishment. It's a form of food. Why is food important? I think art has so many functions for all these different people, all different ages. It's pleasure. It's age-old wisdom. It's showing you different parts of time in different parts of the world. When you're young, it's showing you yourself, which is why I think one, one, one of the many reasons this nation is so fucked up right now has been, and maybe it's the first reason, has been the continual cutting back of education. Somebody at the R Fair yesterday said, since Reagan, and I thought, oh my God, since Reagan, do you know? And it's exactly what the right wanted. They want an uninformed electorate. And I just think that the whole, that half of the nation is kind of miserable. The first thing hate erodes is the hater. If that's your chief emotion and you're spending your whole time, you know, policing, you know, in broader and broader circles, the entire world, 
you're just being eaten inside. Mm. You know, and it has so much of what they hate has no, does not impinge on their life in any way. You know, it's just this kind of symbolic, and it's a place to, to which they are directed by political leaders to keep in a state, high state of dudgeon all the time. And I think art, music, dance, all of these things cut through. You know, they get to the, they, they help people discover their cores. It's like, oh yeah, I mean, there are plenty of kids who go to the theater for the first time or hear music for the first time who just know immediately that's what they want to do. And their lives, their lives have been saved. I mean, if you can have, if you have that in you, it's part of your responsibility to see that you help somebody else find that in themselves. And I like to think maybe I do that with my writing, but you can't, it's not this thing I mean, people talk about art for art's sake. I just want want to say, what is that? What is art for art's sake? Mm. Because art is made for the sake of anybody who claims it, who experiences it, it, finds it meaningful to experience. I I think that's, you just made me very emotional. I think if you're a creative person, you've just said that you have a responsibility to help someone else realize their creativity. Yeah. It's like passing on the gift of creativity. Right. And you have to do That's really fucking beautiful. And it's also a tremendous, tremendously satisfying, you know, for the person passing it along. Correct. It's not just a favor you're doing everyone. But it's because, an act of generosity, isn't it? Yeah. I guess your, your writing is an act of generosity. Yes, it's your job, but also you are... Sharing. Sharing. Yeah. You're yeah. a conduit well, I like to discovery. To think that. And that's what yeah. we try and do with the podcast. Yeah. We're a conduit to discovery. It's an act of generosity. It's really funny because on the opening of Tracy's show at White Cube, we were stood on the street outside with Shirley Manson from Garbage. And a fan from Russia came up to her on the street and said, Oh my God, you're Shirley. And then started telling her all these stories about what, what the music had done for the, his life as a teenager and all of this stuff, mm-hmm. just like blurting it all out. And then he left and took a photo and left. And then somebody came up to me about talk art and started doing the same thing thing and we were both laughing to each other because we were like that's so funny we've had two people just recognize us on the street yeah. but then I said to her isn't it amazing though both those people they're not really telling us well done they're telling us about themselves and their journey mm-hmm. which has been facilitated through the podcast through her music and she said yes that's the greatest lesson to learn as a you know pop star as a mm-hmm. podcaster as whatever that it's not about us it's about the listener and their what you, know, you said I, off in the listener yeah Exactly. Yeah. And like empowering, giving right. them agency to discover who they are yeah. and then feel stronger. And that's such an amazing privilege. I know, but think of all these people who just came from, who, who had that, found that maybe completely by accident and it propelled them into their life. You know, there was this really good high school or maybe elementary school in Philadelphia. I forget. I think it was a public school. I can't remember. But Louis Kahn, who was a refugee from a poor area, went to the school and he happened to have, like, very early on, a teacher who taught architecture, mm. you know, and it's a complete fluke because architecture is not one of those subjects. But, you know, when you ask questions like that, Russell, like, what is art for? Just change it to music because music is more accessible. It's more physically accessible. I mean, it's more accessible because it's all around us and we feel it in our bodies in a more direct way. And eventually people and artists, visual artists, I think, always feel art in their bodies. But it takes a little more conscientious effort for 
Well, I actually think everybody feels art in their bodies. They just don't, they just cut it off because they're more self-conscious. With music, you know what you like and you know what you don't like. And it's very, you're very certain in a certain way. I mean, you know, like, okay, listen to this record five times. You'll get, you know, like there's some hit song that you think stinks. And then you come around to seeing what a few other million people see in it. Yeah, I, I always saw that because it's almost like it travels through the ether, yeah. whereas art was harder for people to access. And that was one of the main reasons I decided to move from music into running a gallery or working with prints was to try and help facilitate and be the person in between the artwork and the audience yeah. to try and encourage people to get into art. And weirdly, we then started the podcast. Yeah. But it's like that was obviously like a mission for a lot of us, I think. Yeah. Elizabeth Murray tells a story about being, I don't know, in nursery school or kindergarten. and She was in an art class. And a teacher came along, and I don't know why, what he was teaching or she was teaching, but started to just cover a sheet of paper with red crayon. And Elizabeth just remembered watching that happen, mm. you know, just pure color, spreading it around. You know, and I just think that's, that's amazing. It, it doesn't take that much, but it does take something, and it takes some consciousness in your environment. And once there, there's very little consciousness of that in this country right now, that it's not this recreational thing and that it, and even if you don't become an artist artist, that kind of experience will help direct you. I mean, there might be, you know, people who end up being designers or doing something or builders who start that experience with a work of art, you know, and I, I think that Right now in America, we can't conceive of the billions of dollars in wasted talent that we expend every year just by not educating people. Mm. And it, it involves the whole country. Like I love these guys up in, what was it, Idaho or Montana who decided they did not want, in the state legislature, they did not want to fund school lunches for poorer children. You want to say... Uh, so you don't mind having a lot of ignorant children running around the state, right? Because if you don't give them lunch, they're not going to be well prepared to learn. Mm. You know, I was just like, stuff like that makes me so furious. Yeah. I think we're very much aligned on all of these things. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, if you look back at your life and you've made this kind of commitment to writing about art and to the art world and to artists, even if you don't get to chat to them that often, um, we have a joke in Margate that we've got a mosque opposite the gallery and then we also have uh, like a Christian church and then we have Tracy Emin's studio and we have our <laughs> gallery and that we're all literally facing each other and we always joke that art is a religion or art is somehow, you know, something that you can commit to and and dedicate a life to. Do you feel like that was something that you did, like, you know, that, that kind of dedication or did, did it have that kind of passion for you? Yeah, well, I think that I became kind of conscious of the idea of quality even before art. Like my, I, I say that my first aesthetic experience was getting into my aunt's Mercedes. She was a real estate dealer up in Westchester. Getting into that car and suddenly realizing like, this is not a Buick, you know, not a Plymouth, which is what I, you know, just know, just understanding that there's some things that are really, really great in their own right. And I'm interested in a wider definition of art. But yes, I'm, I'm very dedicated to the visual. And I'm very dedicated to the idea, which 
is probably unsolvable by now in this country, but of visual literacy. Not only personal, but social as well. I mean, we have so many ugly buildings in this country. And and if you think that they're not affecting the way people develop and think and the standards they set for themselves, you're crazy. Mm. It's like illness. And I don't think you have it that way in Europe because you have you have, you've been there longer. We're not part of Europe anymore, sadly. That's but yes. true. Well, we're part. We're, we're part of. I believe in my heart we are. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Sure. Yeah. And location-wise, we still are. Right. But yeah, it's tragic. And age-wise, you still are. Yeah yeah. 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 So you have. You but you're have right. Physical... There's also a lot of um, protection of like history, and you can't just knock down old buildings or stuff right. like that. And we have free a lot of free museums, which I know is something that's passion, a passion of yours. Yeah. Hoping to try and get museums free. Yeah. Well, that's not after the summer in which all the major New York museums. <laughs> Went to thirty dollars a visit. Yeah, put the prices I, mean, I like up. to think, well, maybe it'll encourage a lot of people to become members. You know, but that's really hard. You sit there and you calculate how many visits you're going to make a year, and all that. But I think Europe has it. Just age and just the fact that you are a series of cultures who had to start building before, way before the industrial age. And that things couldn't be made cheaply. They had to be. They had to be solid. They had to be made out of rocks or or whatever. And that the whole there's a whole kind of internal knowledge or language of understanding of good materials and of. I'm just. I mean, and I don't know what else there is. I don't know if towns are zoned in Britain or if you just have people who build developments that look a lot better than they do here. But there's a kind of. And it probably drives true architects crazy, but there's a kind of pleasant homogeneity in certain, you know, particularly older neighborhoods. Mm. But I, I remember like when you when you land at Heathrow, you just go away, all these neighborhoods where they're just all the houses are all really close together, if not attached. And there's a there's this wonderful continuity of like red tile roofs and you know, and it gives a feeling of community where there may not be one, but it certainly also encourages it. Mm. Yeah, through you know? the visual, yeah. Well, let's get into our final questions. This has been incredible, uh, Roberta. Thank you so much for letting us into your ho- home and letting us talk to you for this long. Not at all. Uh, the first question is, if you could do an art heist, if you could have any work of art in the world for yourself, what would it be and why? You can't have a bo- you can have a bootleg version of it, which we have here with The Weeping, <laughs> right. Weeping Woman by Picasso, but if there was an original... Well, would it I be think the Picasso? I, it would probably be the Picasso, I'm afraid. Why that painting in particular? Because it just is so aggressive in its colors and its form and its emotion. And I know that it's a very problematic painting from a, from a feminist point of view. This is a woman who's being, who's hysterical. I think it's Dora Moore, but I just love that painting. And there are all kinds of things I would have, like certain works of folk art, outsider art, like a Horace Pippin. Probably most of them would be paintings, or there might be a Rosie Lee Tompkins quilt, who's this Mm. amazing quilter, who was really not well known until 20 years ago. So would you visit outside of work? Is it the Folk Art Museum, for example? Is that somewhere you'd visit for pleasure outside of work? Yeah, I mean, the embarrassing thing is that I visit almost nothing for pleasure. I do see a lot of shows. I just, sometimes I go and I look at a show and I look at it and look, and I'm out and I think, I don't really know shows 
if I haven't written about them. That there's a certain way I get to know an exhibition that is not available to me without note-taking, checklist, pressure of a deadline. And that's that can be very limited. So I mean, there are times when like you're in Europe and you go and see, you go to Rimini and you run into a church for five minutes before it closes for lunch and you sort of get mosaics. You know, I've had so many, I've had some really awful, stupid experiences, like poorly planned experiences, shall we say. But um, yeah, a folk art museum is, is that's, I find that art unusually direct mm-hmm. and, and full of talent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's, that's someplace where I'm almost guaranteed. I mean, they don't have a lot of art in, in their current shrunken state. But um, I don't know, I like art. I like all kinds of art, but I like art that's portable. I really like the art that, you know, people can take home and put on their walls and live with and not people who are not billionaire collectors who basically recreate museums on the scale of museums. I mean, most art today is so big. And it, it, I mean, I guess Dennis Schutz has to make paintings those size. And one of the reasons you like that painting of the woman in, with the bald head in bed, it's like a tenth the size of all the other paintings. You, yeah. you could actually put it in a shopping bag and take it home. Yeah. Do you know? Mm, that's so true. Or, you know, almost. I can't quite remember the exact There's also side. something about trauma and sickness and illness or, or something or recovery or something yeah. about that work that I think spoke to me, you know, as a Frida Kahlo fan or something. Right, exactly. It's yeah, like yeah. I'm okay. always drawn to works that are like are like that. Harrowing. What, what is that one again? The one on... Alice that's, Neal. That's Alice an Neal. early, very early, like 1933 Alice Neal. So that's another replica. Yeah. Like a, yeah. And they're actually painted by the same artist. But you also love that image. Yes. And what, what was it about the Alice Neal? It's just really good painting. Yeah. Do you know? I mean, it just has, I mean, painting, it so, seems so easy to look at. And you can tell, like, yeah, that has, has real impact. And that, that artist doesn't even have an idea of impact, at least on me. Do you know? It, it's the most thing like music, where you see it and you know it, or drawings, of course. There's some sculptors now who are making really great things, but. Like who? Well, I can only think, like yesterday at the art fair, I, t- I spent like half an hour talking to an artist named Anne Agee, who's a ceramic artist, who's wor- I missed her last show, so I might not have gotten a sense of the transition, but who's gone from making small kind of tchotchke referential things to these almost life-size clay figures, mm. which are Madonnas with child, with children, except that the children are female. And then they're they're decorated with colors and fabric patterns in different ways. And she was just telling me how she does this and why they look so weird, which is that she makes them flat, and then she then she makes kind of a lot of crosshatch seams at the edges. So the the sculptures end up with seams, and that's how they're and they're three dimensional. They're fully three dimensional in the end. I don't know. I was just really taken aback by that. And there, you know, they're all, there's like Alvaro Barrington is a good young painter who's become known very quickly. And another artist named Jameson Green, mm-hmm. who shows it. Derek Eller, the Henry Taylor show. I mean, there are a lot of black artists that are good oh. because they're very free. And they also have a, they have a subject that is kind of genetic 
which is the legacy of slavery and of being black in this country. Mm -hmm. They have, I mean, I've said it before, but there, when the German neo-expressionists first came up, you realize that the difference between German neo-expressionists and American was that the Germans really had, the young Germans were really coming out from under something, which was the role of their country in World War II. And that gave them a certain kind of credibility or solidity or something that you could sense in the work. Mm. That wasn't the way it was here. You know, it's just reminded me of a question I wanted to ask you, which was I remember when you reviewed Catherine Bernhardt, who I worked with for a long time, and I was actually really surprised when I saw your review, and I think it was of the E.T. show maybe, when she did all the E.T. works, or one of the, it was that era. But I then went back and saw that you'd reviewed her earlier and that you'd been very supportive of her work. And I don't know why it surprised me, but I was like, that's so cool that like Roberta's into it. Because the aesthetic of a lot of the people you champion is so different every time. Mm. So what what is what is it you're looking for when you when you think someone's authentic or someone's you know worth writing about because you believe in what they're doing because it's obviously not just one thing which i find so fascinating well, i think i think i'm always looking for a kind of visual jolt, jolt a kind of coherence and something that you know something you can't look away from and i don't think that you that 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 is measured in styles mm. do you know that there are lots of different ways for this to be achieved that's what I find. That's what I find so so weird about any kind of ideological point of view. Although I'm sure I have an ideology as well, but you know where you're really strict and um, just like saying, you know, if you're saying that, you don't really know your own taste. You don't know how completely promiscuous your taste is, and that you're gonna, you know, at some point something's going to make you aware of that, and then you're going to spend the rest of your life realizing you, you, that there's all there's more and more art that you like and you're never going to get to the bottom of it because there's too much art for any one person to retain. So, you know, and I think also I was put off by her work and I think Jerry liked it so that I hung around with it and looked at it more. I mean, there are plenty of things that I dismissed prematurely and that you regret later. And you like us all, though. I think we, yeah. all, we all do that. Well, that's what I mean by taste. If, if you let your taste, like... One thing I say is don't be afraid to let your taste betray you. I mean, you're going to find yourself liking, being embarrassed to like some of the things you like. So true. And give yourself permission. Yeah, yeah. you give yourself permission. I've also found some of the things that repelled me early on are the things that now are my exactly favorite ever were. So yeah. Or things it? that just didn't convince me on any level and I completely wrote off end up having the most meaning. Yeah. I feel like that with Francis Bacon, it always used to scare me. So I sort of <clears throat> avoided it to a certain extent. And then the last few years, it's become one of the most important... Really? ...kind of artists and what he's doing and the story and his narrative and everything. Yeah. That's changed my life. Yeah, absolutely. But it was always peripheral before. I had it with Rebecca Warren as well, because early on, I just didn't understand what it was. And I was like, what is this work? It was like some sort of alien landing in a gallery or right, something. Right. And now it's like she's my favourite sculptor. Yeah, same. And she's also so sort of rigorous in how she presents herself to the world. So she's not probably as well known right now globally as a lot of other artists are in her generation. But mm -hmm. I still feel like she's one of the most important. And long term, I think her yeah. work will really stand up. 
um, you know, when we're all dead and gone. I think her work will just keep on. There's a mystery within it and some curious, curious world within it that I've not seen anywhere else. And I think that's why when I first ever saw it, I was so confused. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas now I feel like passionate about it, like yeah. in my soul. It's always like if, some, if you really hate something, it's always a good idea to spend a little more time with it. Completely because agree. Because that's, you're having a real reaction. Mm. It's not, you're not indifferent to it. And it's very, you know, it's possible that that's touching something in you and you're just going to be uncomfortable and then you're going to get comfortable. Yeah, because people like to feel comfortable. They, they like what they know. Yeah. So to be shocked or shaken out, out yeah. of what you know is yeah. actually where you're going to grow. And I've yeah. tried it a lot. I, I can't stand Richter's squeegee paintings. They make me so angry. And every time I see one, I stand in front of it and I'm like, I fucking hate this. Why do I hate <laughs> it so much? And I still haven't solved it, Roberta. I'm trying. For you, I'll keep going. The, the second question we ask is, what's your favourite colour? Red. Why red? Because it just is so powerful. And it's, you know, can make almost any painting better. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Lego artists listening, if you want a also good review. Also holding your double gulp yeah. uh, coffee, which is also in red, the logo. Yeah. I didn't realise you both did double gulps. I always thought that was a Jerry thing. But it's, it's a couple I thing. I end up often doing what he does. <laughs> you know, it's very much a kind of follow the leader situation, particularly in domestic uh, issues. He has a very, like, see this, these empty shelves all around here? Mm. When we built these and moved in, and I, you know, he was putting the books away, and I said, well, what's that? You know, you're not, why aren't you putting books in those shelves? And he said, well, I'm going to be putting objects in there. <laughs> it was like, you know, he, he curates things. I would never have done that. And that would be so horrible if it were a solid wall of books. Yeah, it would feel more intense, wouldn't it? More yeah. oppressive somehow. Yeah. Also probably more dread for when you're writing. It's like, look at all these books. Were you <laughs> writing when you both met? Were you both like writers art in the art world? No, he wasn't a writer, which was in the beginning was quite an issue with me. Because said, you were determined to be with a writer? or Well, no, because I thought I was sort of the main thing in the relationship. But, <laughs> you know, and I said to him, look, if I'd wanted to be with a critic, I would have, you know. And it seemed like the worst idea. And I, I did many, a couple of awful things to deter him. Like what? Well, I remember Jerry went to Italy. It's like he had to leave the country just as the village voice was trying to get him. And I remember he called and I was like standing outside the UN building looking at, at Long Island City. And I was saying, you just can't do this. You know, it's just going to screw everything up. You really can't. You're not up for it. You're not ready for it. Blah, blah, blah. I can be intensely unsupportive. And uh, honest, he said, well, he was with Francesco Bonami. And he said, well, Francesco says I have to do it. And I just said, okay. And this was a role that you had there, then he had the same role. Right. Well, there were several years in between. He, I forget when he went there. He went sometimes in the 90s, and I left in about 86. So there, so there was few... slight competitiveness at the beginning with you guys then. Oh, yeah, that's what I said. That's why I liked Lawrence. It wasn't really competitive. I mean, if I've been around all the in high school with all these girls who were like wearing versions of the latest thing in New York City, it would like, I probably would have killed myself, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> I feel like every time we've spoken to Jerry, he always makes the point that you are the main thing, though. He's like, if you think I'm good, wait till you meet yeah, Roberta. <laughs> no, I, I, we're just different, yeah. you know. 
And he has, I mean, to watch Jerry look at somebody's work and then just tell them what they should be doing and knowing that it's something that makes them very uncomfortable to hear. And they'll probably come back to him, you know, in a year's time and interrupt another conversation he's having with someone else and say, you know, you were totally right. I, I don't often have that kind of instinctive. He has a great trust of his instincts. Like he took pictures of himself kneeling and praying in front of Tracy Eamon's paintings. And I said, do you have to do that? <laughs> no. You'd I, never do that. I thought about that as well, because it's we just interviewed Marina Abramovich and she has such a way of being photographed and using hands and using body shapes that that go international. It's kind of like something beyond words. You know, the, the and I, I'm really struck with that, with the way Jerry presents himself. His yeah. photographs pointing at people. Totally, exactly. The, the kind of expressive gesture yeah, yeah. and the power of the gesture. And Ai Weiwei does it a lot too. Yeah. And actually Tracy does it in her own way. Like certain people have that way of visual language and communication. Yeah, and it's a kind of style because totally. they always do it. But it works. It really reaches people. It's really it connects, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, he started just he just started doing that when they started being I mean, there wasn't so much photo photography before. Mm. Anyway, he has a lot to say about that and then I then we both go our own ways. Sometimes you might one of us will beat the other up and say, You have to write about this. You know, what you said to me is really good, blah, 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 blah. You have a reaction, go with it. <laughs> but other than that, He's listening in the other room, I'm sure, right now. Jerry, Jerry are you yeah. listening? What are you, I'm going to have a sip of her coffee. Hello, everybody. Hello, dear. <laughs> so do you have any other vices apart from coffee? Oh, like, yeah. like snacks? Are there things you, keep, you, you well, eat when you write? Um, I tend not to eat when I... Well, sometimes I do, but... Well, we were talking about sugar the other night. We were. And I've I given ate it dessert and you didn't. You, that's right. You and know. I kept pushing the next dessert onto you, yeah, and you kept, kept pushing it away. It was very good. passing them to Lindsay. Um, we, we've gotten pretty good about not bringing things into the house because we're both mild foodaholics, and there are certain things that, if they're in the house, Roberta will eat them. That's what Roberta I'm Roberta like. will make sure that there aren't any left. Yeah. Because you know, like, yeah. that's when the house becomes safe, when yeah. those things aren't there. Yeah. But and also you keep, if you if you're on Instagram everything you thought was a snack gets denounced as like kind bars. I thought kind bars were the answer, and now Instagram says they're really bad. You know? Can't ever win. That's really Can't funny. Allegedly, what, um, what is the best advice you've ever received when it comes to your work? I don't think I've ever received. I mean, except from San, Sanford Schwartz, who would just say, "This is good." And then he wouldn't say anything about any other thing. You know, well, and also you get advice from reading. Like I got advice from reading, uh, especially Pauline Kael and Edmund Wilson. Pauline Kael was this great film critic for The New Yorker. Mm. Very fabulous writer. I mean, so stylized, you couldn't believe it, but also very personal. And then Edmund Wilson is this great literary critic, American, who really was a force for at least 40 or 50 years. He reviewed for The New Yorker for, for a number of years. But these were people who, like Wilson's writing was so clear and simple, you know. And the same, well, Kale's was more ornate and kind of had more personality. So in a way, they were very complimentary for me. Right. You know, or like, 
I sometimes say to people like, just read the first chapter of Jane Jacobs, the, Ri the Fall and Rise of the Great American City, or Rise and Fall, like where she just kind of, you know, grabs you by the neck and you stay with her until you don't. But she basically lays out her whole theory of people and architecture. Well, we've stayed with you for the last hour and a half, I think it is. So oh, thank I you so it. much. I, I just want to end on one of your quotes that you say that your main responsibility is getting people out of the house. And I think that is what your work does for so many people, that we read your reviews and we want to get out of the house and see as much art as we can. So thank you so much for that. Not at all. This has been a big moment for us. Thank you so much, Roberta Smith. Likewise. Um, thank you're on, you, guys. You're on Instagram, aren't you? I am. What, what's the handle? Is it at Roberta Smith? I think it's Roberta Smith NYT. NYT. New York Times. Oh, yeah, New York Times. I thought it was NYC, but it's NYT. Well, I keep hoping when I retire that I can get NYC. <laughs> you can edit it. I've seen... <laughs> I've seen somebody else at the Times do that, but uh, you never know. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's links from your Instagram go to um, the reviews or the... the uh... I don't have a tree yet. I should get ah, that. So anything I link... A link tree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I only have the most recent thing. Or you can just oh, get it'd be a amazing subscription if you one that went the all the way back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would really be wow. scary. Terrifying. <laughs> Jesus. For everyone listening, we're going to post pictures of uh, the things we talked about today. And yeah. this has been brilliant. Thank you so much again, Roberta. And we'll see you all very soon. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Bye, Bye. Roberta. Thank Bye, Roberta. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening.